Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism. In honor of the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi receiving the stigmata, the wounds of Christ, I wanted to upload and present this video on St. Francis of Assisi, the man versus the myth. This was a talk given in 2013 at the Catholic Family News Conference by the late Mr. John Venari. This was done obviously shortly after the quote-unquote election of Jorge Bergoglio, who took the name of Francis. And Mr. Venari, who was the editor of Catholic Family News, will go over some amazing historical facts, events around St. Francis of Assisi and his order, how it completely differs from the quote-unquote spirit of Assisi that we saw through John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now through Francis with the Pachimama worship and the Amazonian pagan uh, satanic rites. So you'll see that St. Francis of Assisi is not ecumenical in any way. Uh, he preached the true faith and commanded those who did not believe in Christ to convert to the true faith or be doomed or be damned. It's much different much different than what we've been experiencing over the past 60 years or so. And he is an example of true poverty, true faith in Christ and the divine providence, and true voluntary poverty for the love of God. And I think that's something that we really need to all embrace very quickly because a lot of us are going to be put into involuntary poverty, given what we see happening right now with mandates, employment, uh, all those types of things. So we're going to really have to rely upon divine providence. Our faith is going to truly be tested. And so now more than ever, it's a time to pray and ask for an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and a true abandonment to divine providence and a love of poverty. So let us Pray to St. Francis of Assisi, asking him to intercede for us before the Most Holy Trinity and before the throne of the Blessed Virgin Mary to obtain for us the unwavering faith that he had in Christ as King and to take on a love of poverty and humility so that we too may be soldiers of Christ like he was. And let us also pray the rosary every day, all 15 decades, to make reparation for our sins and the sins of mankind, the sins of family members who have fallen away from the faith for their conversions, because we all have a responsibility both to save our own souls and to help save others. And not everyone obviously can preach like St. Francis of Assisi can, not everyone has that character, that charisma, that that unwavering faith to that level. But we all can certainly pray, and we do have a duty to pray. And through our actions, I believe it was St. Francis who said that, I preach all the time, and sometimes with words. Now that's a paraphrase, but that's more or less the, the spirit of what he was saying, and is that make your every action the gospel your every thought in your mind of christ and of love of god love of neighbor
And as your life truly preaches the gospel, it will attract others. And you'll hear about how how the Muslims were very attracted to St. Francis of Assisi in his life, but they wouldn't convert. So there's, there's a very interesting story behind that as well. But he truly sought their salvation and their conversion and not to dialogue and, and let them believe that they had the faith or that they worship the same God when they don't. True charity is telling people the truth, regardless of whether or not it hurts them, because in most cases, the truth does hurt, but it needs to be told. And there will be those who hear the truth, accept it, believe it, and will convert. And so let us take on this true, true spirit of St. Francis of Assisi, and let us live in a spirit of humility, of poverty, of total abandonment, divine providence. So I hope you do enjoy this. Please hit the like and subscribe button, pass it on. And I ask you to please pray for me and for those souls who visit my channel. Okay, this is the second talk of the morning. Uh, you all know who I am, John Veneri, editor of Catholic Family News. And my topic is St. Francis of Assisi, the man versus the myth. It was around the year 1220, and St. Francis of Assisi sailed to Egypt to join the Christian army that was besieging Damietta. Now, he didn't go there to fight alongside the Crusaders, but he went there to preach Christ to the infidels. That was always his, his mission. Uh, the armies of the Crusaders had a lot of good men. They were pure gold, truly fighting for the cause of Christ. But unfortunately, it appears there was way too many of them who were driven primarily by a lust for conquest, a lust for plunder. And St. Francis, once he got there, he was horrified what he saw, uh, the condition of the army. So the Crusaders were preparing a grand assault, and St. Francis, before this assault, he stood before the army, and he said, you will suffer a crushing defeat because of your sins, because of your mistreatment, because of, of what you've become. Well, the army was absolutely certain that they were going to win this battle, and they laughed at St. Francis, and they were roundly defeated, crushing defeat. 6,000 soldiers either killed or taken prisoner. Uh, it's interesting, they eventually did win this battle because of papal uh, reinforcements. So after this defeat, though, St. Francis approached the papal legate, who was with the army, and he requested to cross over to the Muslim lines to preach to the Muslims. Well, this really rattled the papal legate because the papal legate, had not, he knew that the sultan had offered a golden ducat for every head of every Christian head that was sent to him, this was highly dangerous, and the people, the papal legate, really wasn't sure if this was heroic virtue or just madness. Is this an inspiration from God? Is this an inspiration from the devil? And he refused; to, he would not take responsibility for it. He says, "You do what you want. I'm not going to stand in the way." I'm not going to take responsibility. I only ask that you do not bring shame upon the Christian name. 
Um, so St. Francis, that's all he needed. So a handful of his companions, they struck out for the Muslim camp. As they were going, they saw two lambs on the road. And St. Francis of Assisi, he saw that as a good sign. He said to his, his, his brothers who were with him, uh, Behold, I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. So the Muslim soldiers, once they got they apprehended Francis, and they brought, he told him why he was there. The Sultan agreed. He appeared before the Sultan, and he began to preach. Now, St. Francis of Assisi had this unique power of the love of God inside of him. He was like a blast furnace of the love of God. He didn't use the conventional phrases of the textbooks of the schools, though nothing he said contradicted the textbooks of the schools, but was it was it was captivating, it was full of love, full of full of full of fire, infectious. And the Sultan feels himself being pulled in, even against his will. The Sultan's really captivated by this little man. So the Sultan ordered Francis to be treated with courtesy while he was there. And it appears that, that Francis stayed for a couple of days. And in time, <clears throat> excuse me, the Sultan said, we want you to stay here for good. <laughs> you can stay for good. Francis's famous answer, willingly, he said, if you and your people will convert to Christ. Uh, no. <laughs> He said, okay, build a fire. One of your Muslim holy men and me, we will walk through the fire. And whoever emerges alive on the other end of it, you must worship that God. No. <laughs> okay, build a fire. I'll walk through it by myself. And if I am burned up, it is my sins that are doing it. But if I emerge, you accept Christ. No. So, the Sultan is still captivated by St. Francis, and he offers Francis this whole, this whole, you know, this, this whole wagon load of gifts. And don't, I know what you are, you don't have to take it for yourself, give it to the poor. Francis says, no, that's not why I'm here. And Francis left. Now, what do you notice? He preached to the Sultan, so that the Sultan would convert. The Sultan refused to convert, so St. Francis stopped the dialogue. The dialogue actually had a purpose to convert the infidel, and when it wasn't going to happen, he didn't waste his time doing any more of it. He left. So, we see that this is just an example that with the new orientation of the church that has come about since the Second Vatican Council, we see this new orientation applied to almost everything, including the saints, and no more so than St. Francis of Assisi. Clearly one of the most remarkable saints in church history, uh, someone who changed the course of church history for the better. But our modern churchmen, too many of them, Rather than really learn who St. Francis is and conform themselves to him, they, following the modern trends, they create a caricature of St. Francis according to their false theories, a St. Francis who does not exist, a St. Francis that St. Francis himself would not recognize as Francis. 
So, St. Francis, as you know, is portrayed as an apostle of ecumenical dialogue, especially with Muslims. He is portrayed an apostle of ecumenism. He's portrayed as a rosy-cheeked, cloth-headed, lovey-dovey pushover. You can see him strumming all we are saying is give peace a chance. He's portrayed that way. He's portrayed as the proto-environmentalist. In fact, Pope John Paul II made him patron saint of ecology. But this portrayal is actually a betrayal. It's a betrayal of St. Francis, the memory and the reality of St. Francis. And we're going to spend some time this morning talking about St. Francis, particularly those aspects by which he is most misrepresented. And I'm doing it as a kind of personal propitiation for St. Francis. Because of the modern presentations of St. Francis, I had been repulsed by St. Francis for, for many years. I, ha I was. I have, to, I have to confess. The holy cards with the rosy cheeks and the little beard, and you know, and if he ate butter, it wouldn't melt in his mouth. I mean, this, sh this schmaltzy, sugary St. Francis who never existed. Now, as you know, um, or as you might know, my original talk was supposed to be about the Legion of Decency and Joe Breen. Um, and in the beginning of February, I, was say, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I really, I have a mountain of work to do on this, to really pull it off properly. A lot of primary sources, I have all the material, all stacked up, I better start. The next day, we got a call, 7 o'clock in the morning from Rome, Benedict has retired. He's announced his resignation. It changed everything. And I was in Rome for two weeks. I was there for the the for the uh, for the the night when Saint Francis when uh, when Pope Francis was uh, was elected and, and and he came out. So I had already done a, a good minute about a work on Saint Francis. I figured this is a good time to talk about him, especially because now there is a real misrepresentation of who Saint Francis was. So to better understand Saint Francis, it is necessary to comprehend. The contemporary forces, at the contemporary trends at the time, that really the forces, I, I would say, that shaped who he was. He is the culmination of three major currents of his historic period. First, the penitential preacher. Second, the knight and chivalry. The knighthood. You cannot understand understand St. Francis at all unless you understand the spirit of chivalry and knighthood fighting for a high and noble cause, often sacrificing all for the love of a lady. Okay? And thirdly, very important to understand St. Francis, the troubadour. We'll talk at these very quickly, one by one. The penitential preacher. Now, it was not uncommon at this time for lay preachers, as they were called, to walk through villages and towns calling to people to a more simple life, calling people to repentance, to a closer union with God, because yes, the end is near. Uh, I'm not kidding. There was a, you might have heard of him, a good man, famous Cistercian abbot, uh, Joachim of Fiore. Uh, he was a mystic. He was ascetic. He retired to a cave in Sicily, and he was, he, 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 he was, he was in the desert. He ended up with a following. And he produced these writings that basically called for, uh, well, there were, there were prophetic books that told about this new reign of the spirit 
that would happen. And he preached reform, not just by calling for legal reenactments of this or that, but for a true reformation of the individual and his relationship with God. A gospel of love of God, uh, and, and as a result, a love of fellow man. As I said, he gained a following. His writings sent a thrill through Catholic Italy. We're talking about, I guess, maybe one or two generations before St. Francis, maybe a little more. But also it sent a terror because Giacomo Fiore said that this new age of the spirit will be cut short by the arrival of Antichrist in 1199. The new millennium, or what, not, maybe not the new millennium, but the, the, the uh, anyway, 1199. Well, as we know, the Antichrist did not come, but Joachim's influence was, fought, uh, was, sought long, was felt long afterwards. And so what happened was, is throughout Italy and elsewhere, these wandering devotees would go from town to town, from city to city, calling people to repentance, calling people back to the love of God calling people uh, to, to, to live a more simple life uh, in union with God. And one of these characters shows up in Assisi during St. Francis' lifetime, early on in his lifetime, and what did he cry out? Pax et bonum, which came to be a motto of St. Francis, so the penitential preacher. Second, again, major current St. Francis, he was imbued with knighthood and chivalry. This would be the chief influence in shaping Francis. Um, medieval man at this time, he loved gallantry, fearlessness of, of any sort. If anybody knows Man of La Mancha, to fight for the right without question or cause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. Um, the, the Don Quixote was kind of the end of chivalry and kind of embodies it. But this was St. Francis. But he would be a knight for Christ. And he would sacrifice everything in devotion to the, to the great lady love of his life, Lady Poverty. You see the influences there. It was a knighthood for the highest cause on earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the rights of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the salvation of souls. The third great influence on St. Francis as to make him what he was, was that of the troubadour, the singer, the musician, who would go from town to town, singing of the gallant deeds of the knights, singing of the great loves and the heart throbs of the knights, um, sacrifice, telling and sacrificing all for their noble causes, sacrificing all for the love of a great lady. You know it now. We still have them, the Song of Roland. Uh, the Knights of the Round Table. He knew all these. He lived through it. And St. Francis took these three major currents of the time, pulled them together, and baptized them because they were baptizable. Not everything that goes on in contemporary society is baptizable. These were baptizable. And he renewed the church by either introducing or reintroducing a sense of poverty and otherworldliness, intense love of God, a blazing charity, astounding charity, gallantry, knighthood, chivalry, and, and this is very important to understand St. Francis, a spirit of adventure, a spirit of battle joy. That was St. Francis. A spirit of not reckless adventure, but a love of the reality that we are involved with. It was similar to what we see in G.K. Chesterton. In his book, Orthodoxy, Chesterton says that orthodoxy is the greatest adventure of one's life. 
And St. Francis was a forerunner of this. So God placed all of this in him. He was a blast furnace of the love of God. As I said, joyful, infectious, spontaneous. And as a result, as his biographer noted, Father Cuthbert, Father uh, St. Francis found himself to be a leader rather than going out to make himself a leader. He was what he was. God gave him all of these, this, the, 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 these, these special, I'll use the term charisma and gifts, and people flocked to him. I recommend the single greatest book on St. Francis. It's, you'll just you'll pass by it on the library shelf because it doesn't look like much. St. Francis of Assisi by Father Cuthbert, OSFC. Um, magnificent, factual, primary sources he's dealing with. And what I like about him, Father Cuthbert, and this book, is you can put this book in a press and you could squeeze everything out of it and you will not get one drop of sugar. You will not get one drop of schmaltz. You'll get St. Francis, who he really was, and he's fascinating. Now, this is not going to be a complete biography. His life is too rich to try to compress it into a 60-minute presentation. The Hollywood movie actually isn't all that bad. It's rather accurate, the one in the early 60s. Uh, of course, there was no Paolo, who was, the, who, was the, uh, who was the jealous rival to Lady Claire. In fact, Francis didn't even really know Claire until after Francis' conversion. So there's little things like that that are not accurate that Hollywood put in there to keep the conflict going. It's not bad. It, actually, to do a movie on St. Francis would require something like Pride and Prejudice, you know, a mini-series of six, or more like Brides Have Revisited, I think, about 11 hours. You would need, I wish somebody would take it on and do it right. So a lot of us know the basic history. We're going to take a highway drive through his early life. He was the eldest son of a wealthy merchant, Pietro Bernardoni. He had a generous allowance, and he spent his young life partying, revels with his friends, banquets, fine, expensive, colorful clothing. Uh, Bertie Wooster would call him the idle rich. Um, but he, he was all, and, but the thing about him is throughout this whole period, he was remarkably lavish and generous, lavishing money on his friends. Um, and he wasn't doing it to buy their friendship. It was just his nature, his giving nature he had. He loved song, he loved the good life. And yet through all of this, he was an innocent. There is no record that there's no record that he soiled his purity that he adopted any coarseness, that he, was in, that he told blue jokes or anything like that. He was pious, he was pure, but he, liked, he was born into the good life. He liked rich parties, fine banquets, everything that went with it, splendid clothing. So he went, as was the custom of the time, he went to fight in a local war, I think it was against Perugia. He was captured and he ended up in prison for a year. That entire year, he was, very, he was joyful in prison. His fellow prisoners thought he was a little nuts, maybe. But he was, he was, he was joyful. Uh, after a year, he's released. He goes back home. And once he gets back home, as is often the case, once he's out and back in the world, the toll on his body hits. And he became very sick. And so uh, his mother was very devoted, very spiritual woman. And she nursed him. And at this point, he senses, he doesn't know what's going on, but he senses he's just not quite as attracted to the world as he used to be. But he figured it's his sickness. He, he, he wants to go out to these great pastures and meadows that gave him so much pleasure. And once he's better, he goes out, and there he is. And yet, it, it doesn't grip him the way it did. 
It doesn't give him the, the, the satisfaction it did. He goes back to reveling with his friends. Um, that too, the zest is gone. Something's, something's missing. It's lost its attraction. So he keeps moving forward, though. He still doesn't know what's going on inside of him. He joins the papal army, and he has an idea to rise in its ranks. He's a nobleman. And because he's rich, of course, he buys himself the most expensive, glamorous, showy, colorful armor. He had the best armor in the troop. And what happens as he's marching along, he sees a knight who's poorly clad. He takes it all off and gives it to the poor knight. Okay, this, this nature was inside of him. Um, he gives his battle armor away. So at this point, while he's with the army, he has a dream that he doesn't understand. He has a couple of things that happen like this, but the one main dream is, return. he hears a voice say, return to the land of thy birth, and it will be told thee what thou shalt do. So, simple faith, he does it. He just walks away from the army. And he, at this time, he starts to be drawn to beggars. Their poverty, their helplessness, touches him and attracts him. This is the spirit of chivalry at work. I wish I could, I wish I could remember how Dr. Hickson put it, that the, the true goal of the soldier is to always to be a help and a comfort to, um, to a child in want, or something like that. He, he puts it very beautifully. Um, but So anyway, so Francis then, he visits Rome, and he, it's like a Sherlock Holmes story, he becomes a beggar himself. He takes off his good clothes, and he goes to, and he wants to see what it's like to be a better beggar. Um, he learns the hardships and the privation of beggars, and he calls it the kinship of the poor. And Francis, at this time, you heard a good bit about this last night. Um, he would also devote himself to lepers, uh, as with the Franciscans after him. This is a huge chapter; we don't even have time to cover. But he, he, he devoted himself to the care of lepers. So now we come to the famous episodes where Francis formally devotes himself to lady poverty. One day he's passing by the church of San Damiano, as you heard last night, a church that's crumbling, and he hears the voice, Francis, go and repair my church, which as thou seest is wholly a ruin. He's standing in front of a dilapidated church. He takes it literally. Heaven wants me to repair this church. So the first thing he does is because he's wealthy, he gathers up a whole bunch of his own money, uh, the things from his father's shop, and he presents it to the priest, and the priest says, I can't, I can't take this, I, and, and he rejects it. He shuts the door, Francis throws it through the window. He throws it to the window, and then he goes to stay with the priest. So dad hears about this, and dad is not happy. He's furious. The eldest son he wanted Francis to follow him as a merchant, to rise to be one of the great men of the city, maybe a magistrate. And here's his son, his firstborn, acting like some sort of fanatic, like some sort of lunatic. I'm a respectable man. My son is an embarrassment. Una disgrazia la familia, they would say. And so he catches up with him, beats him severely, drags him home, and clamps him in chains in his house. Literally. So he goes off on another uh, trip uh, for you know the, his work as a merchant. The mother unlocks him, lets him out, and he returns to the priest. Dad comes back again. The father is not happy, and he engages a magistrate to demand Francis to return everything. 
Francis said, I am now a son of the church. The civil magistrates cannot tell me what to do. So the father gets hold of the bishop and brings him to Francis. And, and the bishop says, you know, Francis, you, 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 you do have to give it all back. So Francis not only gave that back as that famous scene, he took all of his clothes off and gave it to his father and said, I used to be called the, the son of Pietro Bernardoni. Now I am only the son of our father who is in heaven. And that's what the, the biographers call his, his, formal, uh, his former engagement to Lady Poverty. Um, I don't know that his father ever forgave him. Uh, when they would pass each other on the street, any time he passed him, the father would curse him. And in Italy, believe me, there's nothing worse than the parental curse. Uh, but he endured that. So Francis begins his new life. And this is interesting because it shows that he still had self-mastery to, 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 uh, to develop. He's begging stones. He's begging oil for the necessities for the church. He's going through the town doing this, no problem, until one day, at the end of the road, he sees a group of his old party buddies, his old pal aristocrat friends that he used to revel with. And he sees them, and he ducks down a side street. And just as he does this, he grips hold of himself. He says, this is not the action of a knight in the service of a great king. This is unworthy action of a knight in the service of a great king. And he steeled himself up and he walked right into the middle of them begging oil for the church. Uh, he still had to, those inner conflicts that he still had to deal with, but he didn't run away from them. A knight doesn't do that. Uh, this is also interesting because later on in his life, Thousands of, I mean, in his lifetime, thousands of Franciscans, uh, thousands of men joined him, including formerly aristocrat, noble, wealthy people, wealthy young men, who, in order to be Franciscan, had to go out and beg. And St. Francis always had great charity and patience to those men who said, I, I, this is just too hard. This is very hard. And he would urge them to do the right thing. Unless... The Franciscan refused. That's a different story. We'll come to that. Um, so anyway, we come to February 24th, which is, happens to be my birthday, in fact, the Feast of St. Matthias. And there he was at Mass, and he heard the gospel of the day. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Possess not gold, nor silver, nor money in your purse, nor scrip for your journey, nor two coats, nor staff, no shoe, nor, nor shoes. When you come into a city, find one who is worthy. And when you come into a house, salute it and say, Peace be to this house. Behold, I send you as sheep amongst wolves. The gospel goes on. Now, like all of us, he heard that gospel many times. But that day, it hit him. It hit him head on. It hit him like a rock in the face. And he said, This is the formula of knighthood that I have been seeking. So we're skipping over a lot of things. His first three followers were Bernard of Quintavale, I think I'm saying that right, Quintavale, uh, Peter Cathari, and Giles, who all stayed with him to the end. So then they had to form a rule. And they went to a church, I think probably most of you know this story, and they just prayed and opened the Gospels. And they would follow wherever, whatever it opened to. 
Interestingly enough, the, everything that they opened to coincided with this gospel of St. Matthew, that, that the gospel, rather, of the Feast of St. Matthias that he heard on February 24th that, him, that impressed him so much. They open gospel of Matthew. If thou be perfect, go sell all that thou house and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Open the gospel again. Take nothing for thy journey, neither staff, nor script, nor bread, nor money, neither have two coats. They open the gospel again. If any man come unto me, come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he said, This will be our rule. This is what God wants us to do. Poverty, relying on providence, not storing up riches for the future or even supplies for the future, uh, penitence, sacrifice, what he called the knighthood of the cross, that spirit of chivalry and knighthood, constant theme. So they knew they had to get approval, so they went to Rome. If you take a train, I've done it, because I've been to Assisi twice, um, it's a two-hour train ride from Rome. I don't know how long of a walk it would be. But they would have walked, of course, and they went into the Lateran Palace, where the popes were at the time. This would be before St. Michelangelo, St. Peter was built. And he's in the hallways, and he bumps into Pope Innocent III. Pope Innocent said, yes. And Francis said, well, I'm here to talk to you about my establishment of a new religious congregation. And Innocent said, oh, no, not another one, no. Get out! <laughs> Threw him out. So, St. Francis was never dispirited. He just said, okay, well, it didn't work that time. And uh, as he's in Rome at the time, around, you know, within a day or hours of this happening, he bumps into the Bishop of Assisi, who happened to be there. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he, Francis said, well, here's why I'm here. And, and the Bishop says, look, you, you need a friend at court. You just can't go up and ask the Pope for this. It's, it's not going to be well received. I think it's a Francis says, well, I think I know that. So, <laughs> so Cardinal John of St. Paul at Rome, he takes up their cause. He talks to Francis. He's really impressed. He sees this is not just someone with visions of grandeur. There's something really happening here. The Holy Ghost is really operating in this man. So then he, then he introduces him to Innocent. Innocent hears. Innocent is taken in, of course, and he approves, and he remembers, too, before he approves, now he connects St. Francis with this dream that he once had of the Lateran Palace falling to pieces and this little man stepping up and holding back the walls. And he makes the connection. Very interesting, too, this is similar to what St. Francis himself was told in San Damiano. Go and rebuild my church, which is falling to ruins. So this is really a high, I mean, highway drive through his life. Um, I mean, we could talk about the remarkable growth by the, by the chapter of 1219, 5,000 Franciscans are at this general chapter. Explosive growth. A wealthy young men renouncing their possessions, renouncing their honors and their riches to follow St. Francis and the Franciscan rule. But what I want to talk about is the areas of St. Francis where he is most misrepresented today, where he is not, we don't really see the true Francis because of this caricature that they've built and who they call St. Francis. Three things, I, there's a lot we could talk about, but I just want to focus on three things. First, 
St. Francis of Assisi as somehow being the dynamo for the spirit of Assisi. There's no connection between the two of them, except for the name. No connection at all. Second, he was not a peacenik pushover at all. And third, he did not love nature for nature's sake. He is not the prototype of ecology and modern environmentalism. So we'll take a look at these three points one by one. First, St. Francis was not ecumenical. Uh, he was about as ecumenical as Father Feeney, believe me. Um, St. Francis was firmly committed to the truth that outside the Catholic Church, there is no salvation. No ifs, ands, or buts on this for St. Francis. He was not a proponent of modernist dialogue, but an apostle of Christ who preached the gospel, first of all, originally directed to Catholics who had fallen away, who had lost their fervor, who needed to be revived in the faith. And secondly, for the salvation of infidels and non-believers, whom he knew would be lost if they did not embrace Christ and his true Catholic Church. His biographer, again, Father Cuthbert, he says that Francis was apt to be impatient with meddlers and heretics to the end. That's St. Francis. St. Francis, in fact, had strong words concerning those who do not accept Catholic truth. He did not speak in vague terms about the seeds of truth found in all religions. He didn't announce his famous trip to preach to the Muslim as an invitation to dialogue between the great monotheistic religions of the service of humanity. That's Wojtelian terminology, by the way. Direct quotes. No, he preached the need for the conversion of the non-Catholic to the one true Church of Christ for salvation. In one of his oldest admonitions to the brothers of his order, here's what St. Francis himself said about those who will not accept Catholic truth. truth. Direct quote. All those who have seen Jesus Christ in the flesh but have not seen him according to the Spirit and in his divinity, and has not believed that he was really the Son of God, are doomed. Also those are doomed who see the sacrament of the body of Christ, which is consecrated with the words of our Lord on the altar and by the hands of the priest in the form of bread and wine, but do not see it in the Spirit and divinity, and have not believed that it's really our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, body and blood. These also are doomed. That's the true St. Francis. And those who, so those who try to betray St. Francis as an apostle of Vatican II's new brand of dialogue, they're just not telling the truth. And anyone who tries to portray himself as a legitimate heir of St. Francis and who promotes this new post-conciliar ecumenism, and they claim to imitate St. Francis, they either innocently do not know who St. Francis is, or again, they are just not being honest. And this is especially true, and we'll come back to this later on, remember this, is especially true because, as I said earlier, today's ecumenism does not seek the conversion of non-Catholics for the one true religions, but also only to work together in reconciled diversity for the betterment of the human family. That too is Wojtelian terminology. Now, I've already told that he went to the Sultan, he preached to the Sultan to convert. The Sultan did not convert. He ended the dialogue. 
Nothing more to talk about. But while this was going on, something else was going on in Egypt. There were five firebrand Franciscan friars. They were kicking up so much dust in Muslim Morocco that all five of them will be put to death. They were the original martyrs of Franciscans. Their names were Brother Berardo, Otho, Pietro, Acerso, and Aduto. Now they first went to Spain, to the Muslims in Seville, and because they tried to preach the gospel there, they were scourged, imprisoned, expelled from the kingdom. So they went over to Muslim Morocco in attempt to convert the infidels. And when they arrived, they did more than just preach in the streets. They marched right into the mosque and denounced Muhammad from inside the mosque. Well, of course, the friars were seized, imprisoned, scourged. That did not temper their zeal. While they're in prison, they're being scourged, and they're preaching Christ to the people, who, to the men, the soldiers who are scourging them. So this is starting to be, you know, really a sticky situation. So the rulers of Morocco are trying to find a diplomatic way out of this. So they arranged that the friars be, be sent out of the country. Uh, what do the friars do? Do they agree? No. They escape and they go back and keep preaching. Here's what Father Cuthbert said. He says, but the five friars do nothing of diplomacy and had not the temper to live and let live. Mohammed was, in their eyes, the enemy of Christ, and the souls of this people were rightly spoils for their divine redeemer. To get back upon their mission, to go back rather upon their mission, would be a traitorous backsliding from the fidelity they owe to their Savior. So they give the jailkeepers the slip, they're caught, return to the city. Um, they're told to, uh, they keep saying to renounce Mohammed, and they are, continue to preach Christ to their torturers, and finally the torturers respond by beheading them. They all died, were all beheaded for Jesus Christ. Um, a poor, uh, and also, their bodies were taken outside and thrown to be food for dogs. Uh, a Portuguese dignitary, he arranged a stealth operation to get the bodies back. And with great reverence, they were laid at the church of the canons regular in Coimbra, an Augustinian church. And among all the peoples who flocked to that church and to honor the martyred Franciscans, there was a young Augustinian canon who was enraptured, fascinated by the zeal and the dedication and the love that burned in these friars, and he sought out the local Franciscan saying, I want to join your order. That, friend, that Augustinian who became a Franciscan, we now know as St. Anthony of Padua, the miracle worker who Catholics honor with the title of Hammer of Heretics. And as for St. Francis, what did he think of his five friars? who marched into a mosque and denounced Mohammed from within the Muslims' own quote-unquote holy place, who urged the Muslims for their own salvation to not follow the prophet Mohammed. Did St. Francis organize an apology program to apologize for the insensitivity of his friars who did not understand that Muslims with us worship the same God? No, Francis cried out in a transport of gratitude to God. He said, now I can truly say I have five brothers. This is the true spirit of St. Francis of Assisi. This is the true spirit of Assisi and not the false 
caricature that we have been given by men who should know better. Secondly, St. Francis was no peacenik pushover. St. Francis was certainly, I don't want to under, understate this, he was a, an apostle, an ambassador of the love of God, of peace, but always the love of Christ and the peace of Christ. As Pius XI would say, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. But he was no namby-pamby pushover, and he stood his ground when observance of the rule was threatened. He would enforce discipline. I already told you that St. Francis had great patience and understanding for, fri for the new friars who found it great difficult, that they were really ashamed to go out and beg. He was not hard on them. He urged them very fatherly to do it, to do it for the love of Christ, unless they refused. That was a different matter. I love this. This comes from Father Cuffer. <laughs> Father Cuffer tells the story that there was one novice, I'm quoting now, who did hardly pray at all and never did work, neither would he go forth for alms, but he did eat bravely. <laughs> Francis threw him out. Here's what he said. Go your way, brother fly. Since you are willing to eat the sweat of the other brethren, but yourself are idle in the world of the work of the Lord, like a barren drone, you gain nothing and do not work, but you devour the labor and the gains of the good bees. He threw him out. Father Cuthbert, as I said, uh, said that Francis was uh, tended to be impatient with meddlers and heretics to the end. Here's a section from St. Francis' original rule. Because what we have now is we have an inversion. We have this. We have the service of you. We have it should be the love of Christ and dogma being primary, and the service of humanity secondary. Since the Council, and in too many places, we have the inversion. We have the service of humanity first. It's an easy mistake to make because they look so similar. It's a, it's 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 a it's a tempting counterfeit. And he never fell for that counterfeit. Here's what St. Francis said. He said, all the brothers shall be Catholic. Original rule. All the brothers shall be Catholic and live and speak after the manner of Catholics. But should any one of them stray from the Catholic faith or life in word or in deed and will not amend, he shall be altogether cast from our fraternity. In other words, St. Francis would throw you out. Uh, as I said to a man of great kindness... There's one story, very touching to me. Uh, St. Francis would rather, this day, he had planned to fast. He would rather fast. There was one brother who was a little sick. He was weak. And also, not only that, as happens with anybody, even a religious, they get a little demoralized. They get a little down in the dumps. What does Francis do? Francis, even though he would rather fast, he takes this brother out to a sunny vineyard. And they spent, the day, they spent the afternoon picking and eating grapes. That's what he did. And it revived the brother. And St. Francis was showing himself to be a true father. A true father in charity. Uh, there's another story. Of the, uh, there was a brother who tried to fast. And he didn't quite have the strength to do it. But he forced himself to do it anyway. And at one point, his, his stomach was, 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 was nodding so much that he cried out in pain. And St. Francis came over to him and said... You don't have to do this to yourself. Don't feel obliged. Those who can do with less, let them do with less. Direct quote from him. And those who need more, let them have more. 
Okay, a true model of justice, prudence, understanding, charity. But I'll tell you, when it came to poverty, there was no compromise. Um, St. Clair, magnificent, magnificent woman, uh, who we really don't even have time to discuss. Um, she was committed to the same high poverty as St. Francis. And Cardinal Ugolin, Ugolin, I guess I'm saying that right, Ugolin, he was a good man. He later became Gregory VII, Gregory the, the, uh, Gregory the XI. He was the one who ended up canonizing St. Francis. Uh, but while he was still cardinal, he introduced, he tried to introduce into Clare's convent some modifications of the rule that would have tamped down some of the rigid poverty in a, a couple other areas. And how does St. Francis respond? Oh, you must obey your bishop, nobody but No. St. Francis lay dying. He was dying. And one of the last things he said to St. Clare was, stand firm in the poverty you have vowed. Uh, Francis had the utmost respect for priests, great respect for ecclesiastical authority, but he was never an advocate of blind obedience. And Claire, by the way, she won that battle. She won that battle. Uh, more on poverty, he wouldn't tolerate any deviance. One day, a visitor in the church left behind a coin, and a brother saw it, and he took it. Now, here's the thing. He didn't take it for himself. He didn't take it for himself. He figured, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the box here, and when the poor need it, when something needs it, we will, well, we'll have the money for it. Now, I think Dr. McCall could probably uh, talk to us about this. This time, money was kind of considered, I mean, if you worked for, if you worked to pick grapes, at the end of the day, you, give, you were given bishops, that's how you are paid, you bushels of grapes, or walnuts, or whatever you did. You were paid in foodstuffs and, and necessities. Money was considered an emblem of avarice, of storing for the future. That's why one of the reasons why St. Francis had this aversion to money, and, and especially what it represented, storing up for the future. And when Francis learned this, he told the friar, and the friar did it, take up that coin in your mouth like a dog, and you are to walk on all fours, like a dog, from our church to a dung heap, and cast it in. That's what he made the friar do, and the friar did it. Uh, another thing, uh, when a friar joined, after he had spoken, because you know back then they didn't have the whole um, the whole development of religious life. We have now postulously novice and all that novitiate, all that type of thing. It wasn't as developed then. If if Francis discerned that you had a vocation and you wanted to join, you joined, and that was it. You you were you joined, and. Um, but a prerequisite was, was that you had to give away all of your possessions. You had to relinquish everything, and, and here's the real catch, you couldn't give it to your family. You could only give it to your family if your family was poor and in need. But you couldn't give it to your family. So, this young friar who was accepted by St. Francis, <laughs> he does precisely that. He gives it to his family comes back and tells St. Francis what he did. St. Francis threw him out on the spot. He said, you have given what is yours to your brethren according to the flesh, and you have defrauded the poor. You are not worthy to be reckoned amongst God's poor. Go your way. So he was not a pushover. He was not a grinning, felt banners, 1970s, Novus Ordo clergy person. Okay, he was the real thing. 
tough as nails. When he needed to be, he was no pushover. And finally, of course, the big one, St. Francis and his love of animals, his love of nature. Oh, I love St. Francis. He's just like so cool. And like, I just love the picture, like with the little bird. It's just, he, it's just like makes my heart hum. You know. Hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you, if that's the first step to get somebody to know St. Francis, that's okay. It shouldn't be the last step. The first step to get to know who he really is. Now, his kinship with nature. Uh, it's, he's been, he's been uh, lassoed and pulled into the ecology movement and to the environmental movement. Um, you know, modern environmentals are so chock full of communists that they've been called watermelons. Green on the outside, red on the inside. Right? And um, the modern environmental ecology movement, what is it? It is anti-life, pro-abortion, pro-population control, pro-contraception, the entire pagan agenda. The World Wildlife Fund, 1989, Prince Philip of England, he lays bare the real philosophy of modern environmentalism. Here's what he said. He actually said this. He said that if he was to be reincarnated, he said, I would want to return as a killer virus to lower human population levels. That is the true spirit of environmentalism. Well, what is the truth about St. Francis? Well, from what I can see, St. Francis' first miracle regarding animals occurred when St. Francis was passing through Canera. It's about a two-hour walk from Assisi. And he saw, excuse me, he saw a multitude of birds in the sunlight, and he was drawn to them. And they were probably there, you know, they were probably eating, it was harvest time. There was plenty of food for the birds. So Fra Francis is filled with a special tenderness for the birds, and he addressed them. He tells the birds, stand still. And they stand still. He walks towards them, they don't fly away, and he begins to preach to them. My brother birds, much you want to praise your creator and love him, always him, who has given you feathers for clothing, wings for flight, and all that you have need of, God made you noble amongst his creatures. For he has given you a dwelling in the purity of the air, and though you neither sow nor, nor, weep, nor reap, yet he protects and governs you without any care of your own. And he goes on to preach. He finished his little sermon, and then the birds flew away. Okay, What do we see in this sermon? We see the troubadour. This is the spirit of the troubadour. The bursting of song for the love of his king. The bursting of song. And putting it in poetic language, which is which was really starting to... It's, it's been said that St. Francis is actually who ended up giving us Dante because of this, of this poetic explosion of his, with the love of God. And there's another, um, uh, everything, the point is everything with St. Francis was centered on God. We'll talk about that a little later. That's not the case with ecology or environmentalists. There's a case of the swallows at Alviano. There was a flock of noisy swallows that disturbed his preaching. And he turned to them. He said, my sister, the swallows, it's now time for me to talk. You've been talking enough all the time. So the swallows went quiet, finished his sermon, and then the swallows started to chirp again. Uh, the famous story of the wolf of Gubbio. St. Francis comes to Gubbio. There's a pack of wolves, especially one ferocious wolf, terrorizing the town. 
And uh, he's on his way to Gubbio, and townspeople meet him on the, they said, don't come to our town. It's too dangerous. We've got, the, especially this one really nasty wolf. St. Francis says, I've not done anything against that wolf. He's not going to hurt me. <laughs> so he went into the town. He told the townspeople, this is because of your sins. Right? As he said to the army, this is because of your sins. Then he went out in search of the wolf. Tamed the wolf on sight. Brought him back. Told the townspeople to feed him and to take care of him. They gave him a little animal lodging. He became the pet of the town. And he was... He didn't get a Christian burial, don't worry. But he was given an honorable burial when he died, and they built a church over the little area where the wolf lived. Um, the, the title of the church is um, San Francisco de la Pecha, of St. Francis of Peace. Now, there's one thing I want you to pause and notice. It's so obvious that we don't look at it. This miracle of the birds, this miracle of the swallows, this miracle of the wolf, who is it for? Was it for the birds? Did the wolf convert and go to heaven? No, animals have no intelligence. We'll get back to that a little later on. Animals have no intelligence. They didn't know what was going on. They were part of this miracle. Why was this miracle worked? It was worked for us. This miracle was worked for us, for us to wonder at, for us to marvel at, we want to see the power of God over creation and a reminder of our Lord's promise in the gospel. Signs shall follow those who believe. Miraculous signs of the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, and the truth of the church of which St. Francis was an ambassador. And we get also here to St. Francis's love of creation. This was actually, and because we're not taught this anymore, we don't see it, this is actually a manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, especially the gift of knowledge. We remember the three intellectual gifts of the Holy Ghost, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. They're all, give, they're all unique gifts unto themselves. Understanding, the gift of understanding, is what gives us a greater and heightened comprehension of the supernatural truths of the faith. Transubstantiation, the hypostatic union, the Trinity, the mystery, though I don't like to say mystery of the church because it sounds like Henri de Lubac, but the mysteries concerning our faith, okay, we get a heightened understanding of those supernatural truths. The gift of wisdom is kind of an experiential foretaste of the supernatural bliss of heaven. Very few people actually get this or are given this gift. Um, St. Saint, Saint Catherine of Siena had it, these other people experienced the supernatural forte. Whereas after this, everything the world has to offer is, 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 is just a pile of straw. And then there is the gift of knowledge. Now, knowledge is a firm knowledge and understanding of the created world in their relationship to God. In other words, it helps us to see the entire world, the entire creation from God's point of view, which is the only point of view that really matters. You understand, and that's why Father Adolf Tankeray, he defines the gift of knowledge, as I'm quoting here, a gift by which the illuminating actions of the Holy Ghost perfect the virtue of faith and thereby give us a knowledge of created things in their relationship to God. 
God made all these things for a purpose. You're giving an understanding of what they are from God's point of view, of why he created them. And, that, and Francis of Assisi had this gift of knowledge to a high degree. In fact, uh, Father Adolf Tanqueray, in his explanation of the seven gifts, he points to St. Francis as kind of the, the ultimate example of the gift of knowledge. Here's what he says. When Francis felt the immovable firmness and strength of the cliffs and rocks, he directly felt that God is strong and to be trusted. The sight of a flower in the silence of the early morning or of the mouth of a little bird confidently open revealed to him the pure beauty of God and his purity and the endless tenderness of the Creator. In the small things, he saw the tenderness of God. This, this feeling filled Francis with a constant joy in God and uninterrupted tendency to thankfulness. So, in other words, his love of nature was an overflow of the love of God. It's one of the best ways we can understand it is we all have nieces and nephews, and usually we love our nieces and nephews more than we love the little boys and girls on our streets. Why? Because the love we have of our brother and sister overflows to the love of their creation, we can call it, of what they beget. And same thing too, St. Francis's love of God was primary, overflowed to a love of the created world that God, that God gave us. So there's a lot more we can talk about with regard to St. Francis, his stigmata, fascinating story. The fact, as I said, that by 1219, his order grew to explosively to at least 5,000. Uh, the new problems that caused dealing with dealing with these new realities, the revolt of his own vicars, his death. But now we have to move to a new Francis who confronts us. Uh, Pope Francis, who up to March 13th, 2013, was known as Cardinal George Bergoglio, Archbishop of Buenos Aires. I was there the night that he was announced. We were in Rome. I was there with Father Gruner, with Chris Ferrara. And, uh, but I was in my apartment. I had just put water on for pasta. And I had the sauce going. And I was looking on the internet and I saw white smoke. Had I put the pasta in the water, I probably would have hesitated a little. <laughs> I hadn't put the pasta in yet. I turned everything off. I ran out of the Vatican. I really wish, even with all the problems of the post-conciliar church and all the heartbreak it causes us, I, I just wish everybody could be there for a moment like that. Now, I don't get emotional. I, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, but <laughs> I don't get emotional. But the electricity in the air, is, is, is you, you can feel it. You can feel it. And as I got there, there was literally a marching band of all these you know, Roman uniforms going down the street and lights blaring. And you go into St. Peter's. It was more dramatic, too, because I think it was, it was at night. And St. Peter's is a blazing light. And then the new pope comes out. And, of course, we don't. when they announced... Urbanus uh, Papam, and they gave the, I couldn't understand what he said. Um, we all recognize Francisco, that he took that name. Um, and I'm saying to English-speaking Italians around me, who is it, who is it? Nobody knew. I finally learned as we were going out that he was from Buenos Aires. Now, one of the reasons I talk about St. Francis is, and I, everything I'm about to say, I, I do say with respect, really. But a superficial reading, especially coming from the press and so-called conservative Catholics, they portray Pope Francis as a true legitimate heir to the spirit of St. Francis of Assisi. 
Um, I think we can already see that this is its just not the case. Um, most obvious of all is St. Francis dealing with non-Catholics. He dealt with non-Catholics for one purpose, for their conversion to the true faith. Dialogue with the Sultan. And when the Sultan wouldn't convert, he stopped the dialogue. But today's dialogue is not really according to Thomistic thought. It's not really according to, it's not according to any sort of realism. Uh, where you actually have an actual goal that you're working towards. And you know once you've got, once you get there, that you've achieved the goal. Now today's ecumenical dialogue is more according to the framework of modern philosophies, ongoing and ev always in the state of becoming. Ongoing and always in the state of becoming. Ongoing and always in the state of becoming. There is no final cause. There is no final end. And if you know anything about evolutionist philosophy, there's never any final cause. There's never any final ends. It's just always ongoing. Um, but we cannot help be worried that Pope Francis, in his first public Angelus address, voiced unqualified praise for, of all people, Cardinal Walter Casper. The first time he... Now, remember... These popes are defining themselves from day one. And they're sending out messages from day one. Casper. Would you do that? I wouldn't. Casper is on record claiming that ecumenism should avoid trying to convert Catholics to the one true faith. 2001, famous quote from Casper, I know you've heard it before. Today we no longer understand ecumenism in the sense of a return by which others would be converted, puts that in quotes, and return to being Catholics, that's in quotes. This was expressly abandoned in Vatican II, at Vatican II. Uh, 2003, he returns to the same theme. And this is still on the Vatican webpage, this, this, this uh, speech that it came from. He says, several aspects of being church are better realized in other churches. Therefore, ecumenism is no one-way street, but a reciprocal learning process, or as it is stated in Ut Unum Sint, an exchange of gifts. The way to unity is therefore not the return of others into the fold of the Catholic faith. One thing we can thank Casper for, he is not ambiguous. I'm very grateful to someone like Casper who says it flat out. Um, so it's no wonder, I don't know if you saw this, that a Baptist minister named Steve Harmon on March 20th, the day after the Pope's inaugural mass, I was there for that too, uh, Steve Harmon, this Baptist says, one encouraging sign is the admiration Pope Francis seems to have for Walter Cardinal Casper. The Baptist goes on to praise Casper because Casper was the one who tried to undo the damage of Cardinal Ratzinger's Dominus Jesus. Harmon continues, he says, in many ways my most cherished memories of dialogue will remain the lunch in 2007 that we had with Cardinal Casper and the afternoon dialogue session in 2009 in which he spoke to us at length about his perspective on ecclesiology and ecumenical relations and then responded at length to our questions. We see what his perspective is. 
I am greatly encouraged to know that Pope Francis' theological admiration for this influential theological friend of Baptists within the leadership of the Catholic Church. So, as I said, I believe that Casper, in mentioning, I mean, Pope Francis, mentioning Casper in his first Angelus address, sends a clear message that he is of one mind with the German Cardinal and his ecumenical theology, and I think we can expect this in the future, also because of Cardinal Bergoglio's past. Four months ago, he celebrated Hanukkah in a Jewish temple with Argentine Jews. And if that doesn't bother us, we are dead. Our Catholic faith is dead if that doesn't disturb us. So, as I said, this is not the spirit of St. Francis of Assisi. And this leaves us some principles in dealing with the popes. Some principles that, that I go by that I want to talk to you about and maybe it will help you in the future. Number one, especially with the post-conciliar popes, this is crucial, whoever he is, we must look at him with our intellect and not with our will. We have to look at him with our intellect, not with the will. We have to see who he really is rather than some fluffy picture of what we want him to be. I mean, we're already hearing talk about Pius IX. Well, Pius IX, give it. We heard it during John Paul say, Pius IX is liberal. And back in the day, Pius IX, he converted. And we get the Pope, he converted. Great. I will celebrate the conversion after it happens, not before. Um, because we, we, we know we have to trust. We have to trust the church, but it can't be a blind trust. I'm going to quote something rather shocking from Bishop Sheen that he said in 1974. He said, it used to be that we priests were respected simply because we were priests. Now, this is after the, the tumult of the, of the post-conciliar revolution, 1974. He's talking to priests. It used to be that we, prelates, we, we priests were expected simply because we were priests. That is no longer true. Today, each one of us, each one of us must earn that respect individually because so many of us have spoil the name of ambassador of Christ. And so, as much as we want to trust, we do have to say, and again I say it with respect, these men have to earn our trust. And the way they earn it is by steering away from this conciliar program that has just destroyed everything in this path. Um, and here's a final point I want to make. Something I noticed especially during the reign of, of Benedict XVI. And I'm going to start, um, you're not going to know why I'm saying this until I really get to the end, so bear with me. Something I mentioned earlier. Animals have no intelligence. It's not that they have underdeveloped intelligence that will develop. They have no intelligence. This is basic to mystic philosophy. They, have, they don't have it. What do they have? They have the five external senses that we have. See here, touch, taste, and smell. And they have the four internal senses, which is the common sense, which is the common port, if you were, of all the senses. 
and its storehouse, the imagination. They have estimative sense, which is a knowledge of things that is pleasurable, hurtful. And they have that storehouse, which is called sense memory. Now, also animals have heightened organic sensation. If a prisoner exists, uh, if a prisoner, oh, okay, anyway, if a prisoner escapes from prison, uh, no, you never call out your beefiest guard, have him go down on all fours and sniff. The animal does that because he has that heightened organic sensation. Okay, the animals have a lot to work with, and the animals learn and are trainable because of an association of images, because they have these four internal senses of, of, of imagination, of sense memory. That's why, too, if a little boy is teasing a dog, when the, dog, when the boy comes into the room, the dog starts barking at the little boy. He remembers, he remembers that this boy was harmful to him, the estimative sense. Now, of course, when you say this, you will always be bombarded with a deluge of anecdotal. Well, my dog does this. Well, my cat does this. Well, my horse does this. But there was a great Thomist, a student of Father Garrigou Lagrange, Austin Woodbury. He's not known. I know because I, I studied with Dr. Waters, who was a student of his. Austin Woodbury, Father Austin Woodbury points out that there are four formal effects of intelligence. And if animals have intelligence, they should be manifest in these four formal effects. The first is true speech. This is a sign of intelligence. Animals do not have speech. They have grunts. They make passion noises, usually for food or mating or whatever. They don't have true speech, no intelligence. Second, they should make true progress. They should build on their existing knowledge and, 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 and get better. Um, a beaver never looks at his dam and says, you know, I think I could reinforce the foundation a little better. <laughs> And uh, maybe the next one I build, I'll, I'll try Gothic, you know, or, or I saw a book of Le Corbusier, I maybe I'll, I'll go modern for a little bit. You know, no, they make no progress. If, 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 if there is intelligence, there should be true progress. Thirdly, a knowledge of relations, okay? Now, the way I understand, I, I'll give that by means of example. Again, I have Dr. Burnett to, think, to thank for this. They put a chimp in a cage. They hung a banana. They gave him a box and a stick. And of course, what was the animal? Everything about animal, immediate sense gratification. That's what, that's what animals are, immediate sense gratification. And uh, so in time, the chimp was desperate for that banana, and he worked out that if he would put the box down, stand on it, and swing with the stick, a lot of trial and error, he got the banana. So when they gave him another banana, he did it again. And when they gave him another banana, he did it again. Then they replaced the box with a flat sheet of cardboard. What did the chip do? He grabbed the cardboard and stood on it and waved for the banana and couldn't reach it. No sense of relations, no knowledge of relation. He couldn't put together, yeah, I needed that height to make it happen. It was just an association of images. And finally, no knowledge of, well, intellect demands a knowledge of immaterial objects. You will never have a discussion with your dog about loyalty, even though the dog is the most loyal of the animals. You will never have your dis discussion with your cat about haughtiness. <laughs> it's an immaterial concept. 
immaterial. You'll never talk to your, 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 your horse about transubstantiation. You're never going to talk to your parakeet about music. They have no knowledge of immaterial. So these are four positive proofs. Okay, I, like I said, I'm saying all this for a reason. Because we live at a time when God is thrown out of science, and 90% of biologists are atheists, then we end up with an, evolu an evolutionary atheistic materialistic science then with animal researchers who do not understand these things and constantly what's called anthropomorphize animals. They study the animals, they see the animal doing something, they say, ah, that's a mark of intelligence, because if I was the animal, that's why I'd be doing it. They, it's a, it's, 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 you'll see it in nature films, you'll see it in National Geographic, you'll see it in those NOVA programs, all these things. They can't help it, it seems. They constantly anthropomorphize the animal, giving the animal attributes of intelligence that are not there. I saw a picture one time, it was a dog at a vet, and a dog was cuddling into the vet. And the person put, the dog is thanking the vet for taking care of him. <laughs> okay, the dog's not thanking, the dog doesn't understand thanks. He wants the warmth, and dogs are man's best friend, and he just did it. Okay, anthropomorphism. Now, we project onto the animals an intelligence that is not there. I say all this because during the reign especially of Benedict XVI and John Paul II too, traditional Catholics, not all, but too many I think, constantly traditionomorphized Pope Benedict. If I was Pope Benedict and I signed Sumorum Pontifican, that would mean that I want to return to the pre-Vatican II situation. And that's what he's really doing. He's just got these evil men around him, but that's what he's really doing. We tradition amorphize. He, uh, he, he, uh, he, he, he uh, uh, releases one encyclical that had no references to Vatican II. Ah, oh, see, this is the beginning. He's going to go back. Tradition amorphize. We're traditional, we are attributing things that probably aren't really there. Because we forget, again, I say this with respect, these Vatican II prelates do not think as we do. They do not think as Pius XII did. They do not think in Pius X. You think St. Pius X would quote Cardinal Casper? They don't think as we do. So I'll tell you what's been my methodology, and it has always helped me. In fact, it has yet to steer me wrong. The Pope, no matter who he is, no matter who ends up Pope, and it requires ruthless objectivity. We learn who he is, we learn what he is, and when he speaks, we take him at his word. Um, he'll make some ghastly ecumenical statement, oh no, he didn't really mean that. Well, no, no, take him at his word. It has never steered me wrong. Um, and I'll tell you a final point about objectivity. Who can I find? What's your name? Yes. Steve. Steve. 
and, I, and this, is a, this is not mine, this is a direct steal from Dr. Burnett, with whom I am privileged to study philosophy. He's, Timothy, he's great. All right, Stephen, I offer you a chocolate milkshake. What do you say? Sure. Sure, yes, so would I. Sure would I. Now, just as I give you the milkshake, I say, Steve, there might be some arsenic in that milkshake. <laughs> I don't say there is. I say there might be. Now, what matters? What's in your mind, what's in my mind, or what's in the milkshake? <laughs> Stern lesson in objective reality as an objective reality impressing ourselves on our intellect that we have to conform to. That's what sanity is. That's what reality is. That's what understanding truth is. And so, looking at the post this way is not being judgmental, but it is a ruthless attachment to an objective reality outside. What matters what I hope the Pope is, or what he really is? Um, following this, I have to say that there, are only, there were only three things in Pope Benedict's entire pontificate that surprised me. The first was his apparent backtracking on Fatima. He seemed to come around to say again that Fatima is important and that the prophecies are still ongoing. Father Gruner can give you the details of that. That surprised me. I wasn't expecting that. The fact that he himself stopped giving communion in the hand, that surprised me. Because he didn't seem to really, even in his book Spirit of the Liturgy, he didn't really seem to think this was anything important. And of course, a third thing that surprised me is his change of the Good Friday prayer. I was actually giving him too much credit. I didn't think he would tamper with a prayer that goes back to the third century. Um, so those three things surprised me. But everything else, the Tridentine Mass, Summarum Pontificum, his dealing with the SSBX, Promultus, if we knew what he was before he came to be Pope, we could see we wouldn't be surprised at any of these things. And it's also why I never believed that he would agree, quote-unquote, to allow the SSPX to ignore the council. The council is the center steer pillar of his being. The center steer pillar. Because even if, now we don't need permission from the Pope to believe the truth. So I'm just giving you, but I'm just giving by way of example. But if, if Pope Benedict would just give permission to this, I'm not talking about the Society of St. Pius II, just this group and say, okay, you people here in this room, you're not bound to accept the council. What is that? You know what that is? That's the end of the council. It's finished. You can't have a universal binding law that applies to everybody except this little group. Try being a parent and do that. Try being a, a, a prior of a religious order and do that. Try being an employer and do it. It, 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 it you know, so, from what I can see, and I pray that two years from now I come up and say everything I thought was wrong, but I'll tell you what I think now. I believe that Pope Francis is not so much a man of the council, but a man of the 70s. I was in high school with these priests, Father Freddy, the open collar, one of the guys hugging us, not in a bad way, don't you know, but <laughs> hugging us. Uh, during mass, oh, we you know oh, we don't need all this pomp, we don't need all these 
metals. We don't need all these glitter and tabernacle and things. And I, you know, we set cross leg on the floor during the canon, during the mass. Um, it's not really the spirit of St. Francis. It is actually the spirit of Hanserus von Balthasar and his whole approach to, of kenosis, that the way Christ emptied himself of his divinity, so the Roman church, with all of its grandeur and majesty and riches, should empty itself of this in order to be a church of the poor for the poor. This is the real spirit, I believe, we see at work. And of course, Kangar was of that school too. And I believe that if Pope Francis remains on his lifelong trajectory, I think everything's going to get worse. I hope I'm wrong. He does pray the 15 decades every day. That is a great cause of hope. Um, but as I said, I'll celebrate the conversion after it happens and not before. So we pray that Pope Francis will be actually imbued with the true spirit of St. Francis of Assisi, the spirit of the penitential preacher inflamed with the true love of God and that warms people of the punishment of sin and warms people uh, to the love of God, the spirit of the troubadour, the adventurous song of genuine orthodoxy, as G.K. Chesterton said, orthodoxy is the greatest adventure of our lives, the spirit of chivalry and knighthood in the cause of Christ the King and his social reign over the nations. Because it is debatable whether Pope Francis or Pope Benedict or even Pope John Paul II actually accepted the monarchical aspect of the papacy. I was talking to a quote-unquote indult priest in Europe, not a society priest, an indult priest, and he said flat out, oh clearly, Pope Benedict didn't believe in the monarchical aspect of the papacy. He went right down the line, uh, the, the removal of the tiara. The kingship that gives us chivalry and knighthood. The kingship of Christ over nations. And finally, we pray that Pope Francis will eventually be imbued with the true spirit of evangelization, which preaches the need for the conversion of non-Catholic for salvation. This is the spirit of St. Francis. And that he not, he no longer, no longer promote today's ecumenism and endless dialogue that as the great theologian and eminent father Edward Hanahoe, he warned in 1959, he said that this ecumenism, this modern ecumenism, has the effect of perpetuating the state of separation, serving rather to keep people out of the church rather than bring them into it. Thank you for your attention.